pick up Charlotte's. All right, well, Sheila has led the children into a little message about strength, and that is the topic for today is strength. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 today as we talk about strength through weakness. We'll get into Paul in a little bit and read the message, or read the scripture, and then tie it into the message for us today as we talk about strength in our particular time as well. But while you're turning to 2 Corinthians, I did a little research last week preparing for this morning, and the research I did pertained to the world's strongest man. And, and the world's strongest man, I mean, there's a competition. You may know this already, but I found out that the competition for the world's strongest man is something they do every year, and they test for strength and stamina. It happens to be last year, it was held in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and it says it was one of the most competitive in the com competition's history. It said the 2023 champion was Mitchell Hooper from Canada, and it was the first Canadian to ever win the title, world's strongest man. The website World's Strongest Man said this about the competition. It said, yes, it is an annual competition. It is about more than just force. It is about stamina, skill, tactics, training, and strategy. Every event, which I'm going to list some for you, is designed to push the strong man to their absolute limits, challenging not only their physical strength, but their agility and mental toughness as well. Well, that's a lot, but let me tell you some of the things they have to go through and have to do before they can actually earn the title of the world's strongest man. Because it's things like this. It's called a loading method. I've never seen it, don't know what it is, but it says that several heavy objects, each weighing 220 to 330 pounds, they're all carried, dragged, loaded onto a truck bed or a similar platform over course about almost 90 feet. So they have to have 300 pounds and drag her for over 90 feet. There's other things called atlas stones. It says it's five heavy round stones increasing in weight of a range of 220 to 350 pounds. They're lifted and also sit on platforms. There's things called the vehicle pull. Vehicles such as trucks, boxcars, buses, planes are pulled across a 100-foot course as fast as possible. Can you do that, Micah? I can't either. Micah does do this, though. He squats. They have to squat. Large weights, such as 900 pounds of bricks, a car, or people on a platform. Amazing. They do what's called the car carry. Competitors stand inside a stripped-down automobile, which is missing some of its roof and all of its bottom interior, and carried across a... 80-foot course. There's something called a super yoke. It's an apparatus composed of a crossbar and two uprights. The uprights on each end of the crossbar have a heavy weight attached to them, such as a refrigerator or a diesel engine, and the competitors must carry that on their shoulders for a short distance. There's the log throw. A 16-and-a-half-foot log is thrown for distance or for height over a bar. And there's finally something called the tug-of-war. It says it's a one-on-one -on -one tug of war in a single elimination tournament. And it said lots of times it's this tug of war that actually decides the winner. Because a lot of these men have been able to do all these different things and more. So the tug of war actually eliminates someone to become the champion. 
and to earn the title, The World's Strongest Man. There it is. If you're like me, we're not going to rush out and do any of that. Micah might because he's into weightlifting and stuff like that, but I'm not interested in that at all. But notice if you're into it or just hearing about it, notice the recognition as the strongest is determined by strength as defined by muscle, ability, force, power, and brawn. In fact, if you look up the definition of strength, you won't really find that. I mean, there were three definitions I found of strength. The first one really is what we're commonly expecting for the definition, is that the quality or state of being physically strong. And there are those other definitions as well, but it seems that most of the time that when you begin to talk about strength, that strength seems to have been associated with power, muscularity, Burliness, brawn, sturdiness, toughness, force, and supremacy. Which means that no one, no one defines strength by its opposite of weakness, puniness, frailty, or being vulnerable. No one defines it with these types of words, except Paul. Paul defines strength through weakness, complete opposites of one another. So yes, Paul's definition is countercultural to the world, but when we think about strength that Sheila told the children, it's kind of common to believe it, because we know from when we are weak that he is strong, and that God is where our strength comes from. Paul wrote in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So yes, we understand that weakness can be a source of strength for us, but the world does not understand it. Certainly don't understand the world's strongest man competition. And as I gave you some specifics pertaining to the competition for world's strongest man, what I haven't shared with you yet is that it's been going on since like 1977 every year. And they crown multiple champions each and every year. But there are times when one person begins to win it multiple times. So fans of the world's strongest competition pointed a three-time winner of Bill Kazmaier as the strongest ever, or the five-time winner of Maurice Kudinowski as the strongest man ever. Because they've won it multiple times. So they say because they've won it multiple times, three to five times, they've got to be the overall world's strongest man. But I think they're wrong. To me, the strongest man ever is Jesus Christ. I mean, who else do you know that took the massive beating, who had a crown of thorns forced upon his head, had three nails driven into his body, and lived today? Only Jesus has done that. So that, to me, makes him the world's strongest man ever. Well, today, then, obviously, we're talking about strength. And we talk about how strength is not determined by muscle and brawn and power force. But we talk about how strength comes through weakness. Our text we're going to look at today in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 may be one that you're familiar with. You've probably heard about before. Or at least you've heard about Paul's thorn in the flesh. That's what we talk about today. As stand this morning as we get ready to read 2 Corinthians 12. Again, we're in the middle of the, of the chapter. I'm going to refer to the beginning in just a moment. 
But we're going to pick up a reading in Paul's letter to Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 7. So here's what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. So to keep me from being conceited because of the passing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly on my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, we do thank you for this reading today. If we jump into Paul's letter, his second letter to the Corinthian church, that actually will lead us as we think about this new year that we're in of how we can be strengthened through any weakness that we have and how, Lord, we just are, we're just weak people. They may not want to admit that, may want to think about that, Lord, but we are weak. But we see how our strength comes from you. So let us hear the message today you chose for us to have today and, and let us then receive it and listen and apply and learn we thank for what we shall do today lord and we shall learn and we thank you again for this message and for all your blessings which we know the best blessing as i always say your son jesus christ it's in his name we pray amen well mission we're going to start not at the beginning of the chapter, but we're all going to refer to it. So if sometime later you get a chance to read the entirety of the Second Corinthian letter, or for that matter, just chapter 12, you're going to notice that at the beginning of the chapter, Paul has what I refer to, and it just makes sense to say it this way, a unique experience. Well, how unique, you ask? Well, it's exceptionally unique. I mean, his experience is just extremely unusual. It's very, very rare. Where we find at the beginning of the chapter, he is called up to the third heaven. Look at it with me in chapter 12, verse 1, particularly verse 2 and 3. Because Paul is beginning the chapter, he is writing to Corinthians, and he says in the third person, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So notice that we stop there that Paul visits the third heaven, referred to and called as paradise. You say, okay, well, what is the third heaven? Well, the third heaven is simply God's dwelling place. The first heaven is known as the atmospheric sky. The second heaven is known as the planetary sky. So the third heaven is God's dwelling place. So observe then that Paul was called up there. I mean, we don't know exactly how these things work, but he's He's heard there, and he's called up, and he, he heard, according to verse 4, if you read further, he heard things that cannot be told, which no man can utter. And then he tries his best, you read the letter, and he tries his best now not to boast. Not to boast of anything except of his weakness, which he mentioned in verse 5. So regarding then his extremely rare, highly unusual experience, I call upon the words of senior pastor Dane Ortland who says this, to the readers of 2 Corinthians, the opening verses of chapter 12 may sound as that after a litany of hardships, 
the apostle finds some strange satisfaction, he relates a truly boastworthy experience. Is that Paul himself was evidently caught up into the heavenly world and given a glimpse of divine resplendence that no words can adequately describe. It's very unusual to see what, and to hear what Paul is seeing and hearing. It's highly, it has to be very rare. And because it's so unusual for most men, for most people, in fact, to have such a thing happen, it would result in boasting. Case in point, there are countless books written today that is available for purchase, available to you, about someone who is supposedly called into heaven. A quick search I made last week on Amazon shows not one, not two, not three, not even a half a dozen books on this particular subject of people called up to heaven, but over 50,000 books on Amazon available for purchase pertaining to the subject matter of heaven. Now, those books will have a wide variety that you can be able to read and accept or purchase. I mean, there are very informative educational books on heaven, which is one written by Dr. Randy Alcorn, simply called Heaven. And then there is many, many more books, a wide range of books, that are best described as fiction with someone who has said they went to heaven. In fact, sadly, most of the 50,000 books available for purchase on the subject matter of heaven pertain to someone's visit to heaven. And it seems then they cannot wait upon their visit to heaven, they cannot wait to get back to tell the earth and everyone about what they've seen, what they gained, what they learned. Now, let me share with you. Among some of the books that people have said, I've been to heaven, are things like this. Nine Days in Heaven, written by Dennis Prince. Or My Time in Heaven, One Man's Remarkable Story of Dying and Coming Back, written by Richard Sigmund. Or My Journey to Heaven, What I Saw and How It Changed My Life, written by Marvin Bester. But there's many, many, many more. That's just a flavor of what's available. But there's many, 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 did I say many? Many, many more books available fictional based upon their experience, their call up to heaven. But it seems that the book that most people seem to be really critical about is a book called, maybe you read it, maybe you've seen it on TV or movie, Heaven is for Real by Todd Burbo. In case you've not, this book tells the story of a four-year-old boy named Colton who has a near-death experience and then shares snippets of his experience with his parents. People are very critical of this book. One in particular who makes no bones about it and actually calls it on the carpet is Dr. John MacArthur. And MacArthur says this, and he becomes a well-known critic of the book. He said the best of all these tales, he's referring to all these different supposed visits to heaven. He said all of these, if all of these, heaven is for real. It was a major motion picture picture released in April 2014, is a story of Colton Burpo, whose parents he believed he visited heaven when he was just four. During surgery, after a burst appendix nearly took his life, Colton's descriptions of heaven are full of fanciful features and peculiar details that bear all the earmarks of a child's vivid imagination. MacArthur says, 
There's nothing transcendent or even particularly enlightening about Colton's heaven. It is completely devoid of the breathtaking glory featured in every biblical description of the heavenly realm. That's MacArthur's comment. And I can refer to others who have comments just like MacArthur, pertaining to people who said they've been to heaven and can't wait to get back to write about it. Notice how Paul doesn't write about it. He just refers to it. We'll come back to that in a moment. But perhaps you wonder, why is MacArthur and other scholars like him perhaps so critical of people who've been to heaven, supposedly, or even of this particular book, Heaven is for Real? And he, and he continues then. He says, stories like Colton's are as dangerous as they are seductive. Readers not only get a twisted, unbiblical picture of heaven, they also imbibe a subjective, superstitious, shallow brand of spirituality. Studying mystical accounts of supposed journeys into afterlife yields nothing but confusion, contradiction, false hope, bad doctrine, and a host of similar evils. When we compare such claims with Scripture, it becomes clear they are merely figments of the human imagination, not true visions of heaven as described in God's Word. So that's what MacArthur's take is on people who said they've been to heaven. That doesn't mean it can't happen. That's his take on what is actually happening in a lot of these books that are available for purchase. But I noticed that unlike Colton Burpo and the book Heaven is for Real and others who supposedly have visited heaven, Paul, as, as we go back to the text, Paul chooses not to express any words from his visit. I mean, he does not elaborate and desires not even to boast. In fact, notice in the text, you go back to kind of look at it for just a moment, but notice that Paul doesn't even mention it until 14 years after the fact. Verse, 14, verse, four, verse 2 says, as he's talking about it, right in the Corinthians, verse 2 says it occurred 14 years ago. For, for 14, we have people who go and come back and can't wait to write a book or make a movie. We have Paul a man of God who's been, according to the scriptures, and didn't even talk about it for 14 years. And when he talked about it, he just referred to it. All that should actually be an, a warning for how we need to be careful of what we read from others who may be only out to gain a dollar. But getting back to the text, notice how Paul's been, it describes in the, in the text, we see that at the beginning of the chapter, but notice now to keep Paul focused. I mean, Paul is a messenger to the Gentiles, so keep him focused on the task at hand as spreading the good news to the Gentiles. He is humbled, in verse 7, by thorn in the flesh. It says, so to keep me, he had this remarkable journey, however it worked, so to keep me from be becoming conceited because of the passing greatness of the revelations that he had witnessed, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Many people over the years then of reading the 72nd Corinthians 12 have now inquired about this thorn in the flesh. The curious minds ask, what is this thorn in the flesh that Paul was writing about, that Paul was talking about? Rather interestingly, Easley states this, he said, Paul did not say 
what his thorn in the flesh was. Although the Corinthians probably knew. That's a little subjective. He said, and certainly though, and certainly about the specific identity thorn, has allowed believers down through the ages to apply the concept to their own circumstances. Suggestions about the thorn have included physical ailments, like a poor eyesight, we've heard that about Paul, or ill health. Psychological or spiritual ailments, depression, economic oppression, or an ongoing temptation from a bodily desire, in opposition to his ministry, enemies both inside and outside the church. I mean, it could be that you have actually heard some of these possibilities in a previous study or message pertaining to what that thorn in the flesh could be for Paul. I refer to John Corson, who adds this. He said, what was the thorn in the flesh of which Paul speaks? As the commentators have suggested, it was an eye disease, malaria, an irritating person who followed him around. I have that sometimes. Or physical repercussions of the stoning he endured. You know, Paul was stoned and left for dead. We've been talking about that in our student studies in the book of Acts. He said, we don't know for sure what it was, but this we do know. The word translated thorn is the word for tent stake. The 18-inch long spikes necessary to anchor tents in the fierce desert winds. Thus Paul's thorn more closely resembled a sword in his side than it did a sliver under his skin. Well, I use Corson's comment here because it adds an interesting thought. Because remember, Paul is establishing churches. He's a message to the Gentiles. He's had three missionary journeys. He's going out all the different places, and he's preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And every time he goes to a new city, new place, establishes a new church, wherever, every time he goes anywhere upon his journey, he always has the Judaizers falling behind him to say that Paul is wrong. It's not just Jesus. You can have Jesus. But you need Jesus plus the circumcision and all the laws and tradition. You must keep it all. So every time he goes anywhere, he meets opposition. Or the opposition comes after he arrives and tries to discredit Paul. So Paul then definitely, Corson could be right, he definitely has a sword in his side from his opposition rather than just a sliver under his skin. So that could be a possibility. But I refer to one more to consider the thorn in the flesh, which is N.T. Wright. He says again, there has been endless speculation about what this was. A recurrent disease is the most likely guess, but we have no idea what sort. Or it might simply be the recurring persecution which Paul was always suffering, as he said in the previous chapter. But the point is not just that it happened. And niggled away at him so that he couldn't simply enjoy his wonderful spiritual experiences for their sake. The point is that he prayed hard and longed for God to take it away, and God said no. God said no. He prayed for God to take away the whatever it is, a thorn in the flesh, and God said no. So let's expand upon that just a minute. Let's just ask ourselves, and have, have we ever been somewhere in a situation where something is happening, or just sometime in life, have we ever prayed about something and wanted it so badly that you just kept praying about it? And you pray, and you pray, and you pray about this one particular thing, and it just does not seem to happen, 
and maybe nothing resulted from your continuation in the prayer battle. Or, or maybe it's just that you that what you prayed for so strongly, so intently, it just didn't happen. Have you been there? Because I think maybe we've all been there at one point in our life. I mean, noticing that Paul, he may be in that moment. I mean, Paul maybe was right there. I mean, look at verse 8 again. I mean, he asked, better word really according to the text, and he didn't just ask. I mean, he pleaded. Notice the word pleaded in verse 8. Three times I pleaded. He ain't just asking. I mean, it's like he's begging, pleading for the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. I mean, Paul's been there. He knows what it's like to have a moment of prayer and want something so bad. And it doesn't happen. He pleaded three times, God, remove this thorn, whatever it is. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, we're going to expand upon that phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, just a moment. But notice how God just kind of says no. No, Paul, I'm not going to remove this thorn in the flesh, as you described it. I mean, sometimes God's answer is no. When we begin to pray about something and really want it so badly, so strongly, and then nothing happens, I mean, really the answer to God is no. Now, as a parent, as a father, I didn't always say yes to my children. Now, if you ask Sheila, she would say I said yes all the time. But I didn't always say yes. There were times the answer was no. And as a parent, we have to say no to our children occasionally. I mean, no, sometimes is the answer to certain requests and supplications by our children, but also to us as we pray to God. No, sometimes is the answer. And we have to remember that God knows better than we do. And so we must accept his way, his answer, his plan. I refer to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, simply said, God knows what is best for us, much better than we do. We may think that we know, but God truly knows. Because he knows what we need better than we do, sometimes the answer is no. So Paul's answer, or his pleading to his removal of the thorn in the flesh, to whatever it may have been, is no. And notice how it resulted in him becoming humble, or it becoming him being weak, but yet stronger. In fact, God told him, not really no, God just told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, what does that mean? I mean, what does it, I mean, what does it mean when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, to Paul or to any of us? I mean, we need to expand upon that. My grace is sufficient for you. I began to elaborate and begin to expand on that phrase. Maybe we need to be asking ourselves simultaneously, is God's grace sufficient for me? Or do I need more? And the answer, begin to process that in your mind and your heart is, yes, God's grace is sufficient for you, for all of us. 
So notice then the phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, has two key words. The key word, number one, is grace. And the second key word is sufficient. So let's expand upon each word. What is grace? Worsby says this. It is God, grace is this. It is God's provision for our every need when we need it. It has been said that God in his grace gives us what we do not deserve. And in his mercy, he does not give us what we do deserve. He says, someone has made an acrostic of the word grace. God's riches available at Christ's expense. So grace is essentially giving us what we do not deserve. But there's also the word sufficient, as in really it's kind of enough. You don't need any more. Sufficient means enough. Words be continued that this was a message of sufficient grace. There is never a shortage of grace. God is sufficient for our spiritual ministries and our material needs, as well as our physical needs. If God's grace is sufficient to save us, surely it is sufficient to keep us and strengthen us in our times of suffering. So really, it's almost a simple application. I mean, it's like Paul, we all ask God for help. Everyone at some point in your life, you will ask God for help. We just recognize how there are times in life we ask and sometimes the answer is no. But we all, at some point, ask God for help. And in the text, essentially Paul was asking God for help. Again, three times he asked for God to remove the thorn in the flesh, whatever it is. But God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Which means this then. As far as our Father is concerned, the purpose of prayer is not that we might that he might help us, but that he might give himself to us. They kind of got to process that just a moment. My grace is sufficient for you. Begin to pray for God to remove something from our lives or to help us in some situation means as far as the Father is concerned, the purpose of the prayer is not that he might give help to us, but that he might give himself to us. I begin to really have to process that for it to make sense. But it's almost like this. When he says, my grace is sufficient for you, in a moment of prayer, it's almost like this. It's almost like the Father says, okay, you want me to take away the pain? You want me to solve the problem? You want me to get you out of the situation? But that's not what you need. You need me. And the very problem you're seeking to get away from, the very situation you desire to get out of, is the very one that's causing you to talk to me, to spend time with me, and depend on me. You'll be stronger when you're weak, because you'll have no other choice but to draw strength from me. You'll do better when you're weak, because you have to rely on me. That is the very best explanation I've ever read, ever heard of the expression, my grace is sufficient for you. It's worth another reading. You want me? When you're praying about God to remove something, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you, he says, you want me to take away the pain, to solve the problem, to get you out of situation? That's not what you need. You need me. The very problem you're seeking to get away from, the very situation you desire to get out of is the very one that is causing you to talk to me, spend time with me, and depend on me. You'll be stronger when you're weak 
because you'll have no other choice than to draw strength from me. You'll do better when you're weak because you have to rely on me. I love that. My grace is sufficient for you. It begins to make sense that God wants us to rely on him rather than self. Here's a question. Do you think that God sometimes allows things to happen so that you begin to depend on him rather than self? Dr. Jeremiah says God never allows pain without purpose. Instead, he uses your suffering to dispense his power. And his power cannot rest upon you unless you've abandoned the idea that you're big enough to go it alone. You need to realize that you're not big enough. You'll never make it without depending utterly upon him and going in his strength. In other words, again, God's grace is sufficient for you. And in Paul's case, it is exactly the same. God's grace is sufficient for Paul. God's grace is sufficient for us. So essentially, go back to the text again, in verses 8 and 9, Paul recognizes then his need for God and that he, Paul, is like all of us, that he is weak. He needs God. We need God. All of us are weak. In verse 8, again, it says, my grace is sufficient for you, but notice it also adds a little bit more where it says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We can't leave off that part of the, of the sentence. My power is the answer God gives him. My power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, by adding those words, it's like God's grace is shorthand for the presence of God or the sustaining, empowering, calming, supporting, comforting, emboldening, satisfying, and strengthening that he gives us. And it's called grace. The grace that God offers Paul and us channels divine power. The presence of God will sustain Paul, as it will us. The power will strengthen him, and as it will us too. What we must not miss is that it is not Paul's strength, but God's. Paul's contribution is weakness, as is ours. We are, we don't like to admit it, we are weak people. It doesn't matter. If you win the title of the world's strongest man, you're still weak. In fact, you are powerless without God. Referring to Ortland, he says again, our weakness is precisely what God delights to work in. This is the mystery, the wonder, the glory of New Realm Christianity united to a crucified Lord. Our weakness attracts, not repels, God's own power. Our lowness and incapacities, which we naturally fear and flee, is precisely where God loves to dwell. I love that statement. And we should be thankful for the fact that God loves to dwell there when we are powerless and we are weak. Because God always comes to our rescue. He's offering us strength through our weakness. I mean, there's no other way to explain it except for it must be God. And that we're weak and we cannot stand on our own. When your husband, in a situation with Tom and Penny, when your husband, as Penny found Tom in 
Florida, suffering, could not make it home with him. And she was all alone. She needed God's grace, his presence, and his strength. When our friend Ray Golden was diagnosed with cancer, had a short time to live, and then really was ready to be with the Lord, we needed God's grace, his presence, and his strength. When your son is in an accident, like what happened to Levi years ago, and the family then feels helpless, you need God's grace, his presence, and his strength. When you are many months pregnant, as Kimberly has shared with us with her son Daniel, and you have one complication after another after another, you need God's grace, his presence, and your strength. When your father or your mother dies, you cannot do it alone. You need God's grace, his presence, and his strength. Can you see how we're all weak? We cannot do it alone. We simply do not have the strength. But fortunately, God does. And in our weakness, we're made strong through him. That's what essentially Paul was saying in this text. I mean, note in the text, the beginning of the chapter, I mean, Paul offers a, a revelation that he had an incredible experience. It starts with an incredible journey to the heavens. But he quickly adds a few verses later that he had this thorn in the flesh that God would not remove. We ask ourselves, why? And it's all to humble him and for him to recognize that he is weak without God. And Paul's pursuits are flipped upside down. God had given him a revelation of heaven. But simultaneously, he also been given a revelation of how fallen sinners like him and like us would simply result in being weak people. Paul's revelation to himself and to you and to me is that God is sufficient. God is strength. I mean, in our lives, frailty lives. Feebleness governs our lives. However, in that moment, is God's grace ignites. I mean, there in that moment, God himself dwells. And through the strength of God, we are made perfect in our weakness. Maybe the only question remaining to ask is, do you feel weak today? And as I mentioned already, if we're honest, truly honest, rather than putting a facade for people who are watching us, we are weak every day in our lives. Like I said, most of the time we don't want to admit it. We're raised, if you're like me, you're raised mentality that you need to just put on your bootstraps and get going. Like the expression is, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. We're taught that at a younger age, a very young age early in life, we're taught these things. Especially men, boys, unfortunately, are told it's not permissible to show weakness. But that's wrong. I mean, as strong as we may pretend to be, we are weak. Male or female, it makes no difference. We are weak people. But as Paul learned, the good news is this. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Which means then, in the weakness, we can be just as content as Paul. He says in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, or insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. All that means is this. We do not have to pretend anymore. It's okay to be weak. There is no shame. There is no embarrassment. There is no disgrace in being in a weakened state and condition. For when I am weak, then Christ is strong. You may not know the name Anthony Furman, but Anthony Furman is no stranger to intense situations. As a two-time World's Strongest Man, Titan Games competitor, an Army infantry veteran, Furman has had his physical strength tested to the limit. But it wasn't until he started acknowledging his own battle with depression and anxiety that he discovered what true strength really is. True strength is admitting I am weak. Here's his story. He said, I was in the Army 15 years in the Army infantry, deployed a bunch of times. And I can say I never sought treatment afterwards. I never had to seek treatment. I thought I was fine. I realized that there was something wrong when I was not taking joy in the things I once took joy in. I thought it was because I had some injury, which is common in athletes. Something athletes never really talk about is a deep, deep depressive episode you can get into while being hurt. Usually you come out of it when your injuries are healed up. But I didn't have a physical injury. It was all mental. I started self-medicating a little bit with alcohol because it relaxed me enough that I could kind of be myself again. The problem is once you're not drinking, you start drinking again because you want to get back to feeling good. Luckily, I snapped out of that fairly quickly. I admitted my weakness and started going to therapy, and they diagnosed me with anxiety disorder and depression. Once I finally went in and accepted help, it was like somebody had been sitting on my chest for a year, and I finally got them off of me. I could breathe again. I felt better. That's when I decided to start speaking out publicly. I have done some of the hardest physical and mental tasks. I have walked 30 miles in the desert, gotten into firefights, pulled buddies out. I've done it all. I've also lifted weights that less than 1% of the world can lift. But the hardest thing I've ever done was to talk about my feelings to a counselor. That was probably also the manliest thing I've ever done. Because without being vulnerable, you cannot improve. Essentially, I had to admit that I am weak. It's not easy. No one likes being vulnerable. Not one single person who's ever walked this earth. I would say that's having done every physical and mental task on earth, pour myself out and being vulnerable, that's the only thing you can do, just admit that you're weak. Fearman's story illustrates how it becomes okay. In our society, it says it's not okay to express weakness, or it's not okay to become vulnerable. But his story shows how it is okay. It is okay to admit weakness. Weakness to the world is the opposite of strength. However, weakness and the admission thereof is actually the beginning of strength. Do you want to become one of the strongest people in the world? It starts by admitting that you're weak. And to acknowledge that your strength lies in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Your strength lies in Jesus Christ, not yourself.
Your strength lies in Jesus Christ, who is the world's strongest man. So no, we don't have to pretend anymore. It's okay to be weak. There is no shame, there's no embarrassment, there's no disgrace in admitting that you're weak. Because for when I am weak, then Christ is strong. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today of how it contradicts the world's teaching and how each of us, Lord, then need to admit, recognize that we are powerless. We cannot do anything, Lord, on our own, although we try. We try to sustain power and might and force by self. But Lord, let us today recognize we just need to simply submit to you and admit to you and to anyone that we are weak and recognize that our strength comes from you and from you alone. So I pray, Lord, for all of us to heed that message today. Admit that we're weak and we need you. You're always there. You never leave us nor forsake us. You're there rescuing us and strengthening us as we need. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the strength you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand this morning.